Example Studies The following are short examples of what a Bible study might look like at any of the six different Zoom levels. Use these to get a sense of how you can structure your own personal studies. Level 1 Example Study The Bible For obvious reasons, it would be impossible to fit an example study of the entire Bible into this book. But what we can do is take a look at what a small chunk of that study might look like. Let's say we've chosen a chronological reading plan, and we've just reached the book of 2 Samuel. This is where a chronological plan gets really interesting, because following the thread of the Bible's narrative here means moving through its books in an unusual order. As we read through 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, we're going to be jumping between those books and many of the Psalms that David wrote during his life, as well as reading parallel accounts in 1 and 2 Chronicles, punctuated by many prophetic books. It's a convoluted route, but the end result is a clearer picture of the Bible's internal timeline. What happened when, who was involved, and why it matters in the overarching story. Notes on note-taking Whatever reading plan you use, taking notes makes a huge difference. But the speed you're moving through the Bible will have a huge impact on the kind of notes you take. If we're looking very closely at every verse along the way, then we'll probably want to take notes on every insight we're extracting from those verses. Maybe that means charting out David's family tree in 2 Samuel chapter 3 verses 2 through 5, or making notes on his interactions with military commanders like Joab and Abner. At this slower speed, we're examining verses from every perspective we can imagine, probably even pausing to do a word-level study here and there. But if we're reading a couple chapters every day, then our notes might be more of a summary of each chapter in our own words. And if we're moving through four or five chapters at a time, our notes might just be a brief reflection on anything that jumped out at us during that reading session. What do we think about David's dancing before the ark in 2 Samuel chapter 6? What comes to mind when we read God's covenant with David in chapter 7? Either way, we'll end up with a written record of the pages of God's word we've interacted with, a useful tool for reference and reflection as we move forward. A million other studies stacked together. Reading through the entire Bible is a mammoth undertaking, and we'll naturally switch between different zoom levels as we move through its text. Every time we move into a new book of the Bible, we could benefit from doing a little book-level study to help us get the most out of what we're reading. As we move through these books, we'll find ourselves naturally zooming in and out, taking a closer look at individual words and verses. How exactly did David inquire of the Lord in 2 Samuel 2 verse 1? Then stepping back and considering topics and themes threaded across multiple books, how is God's covenant loyalty reflected throughout David's life? And that's what reading through the Bible really is. A million other studies all stacked together, one after the other. Remember, there's no rush to finish this in a certain time frame. Take your time listening to what God wants to tell you, whether the focus is on the bigger picture or on a beautiful little flourish. Level 2 Example Study Topics Zeal is a fascinating topic in the Bible. It's a character trait we see displayed by God, and it plays an important role in our Christian journey. But there are times in the Bible when it proves to be horribly destructive as well. Start with the topical index. We'll start our search in the Dictionary of Bible Themes. Now this is just one of many resources we could use in our study. Nave's Topical Bible is another great choice that has the advantage of being accessible online for free. It organizes scriptures on zeal differently, breaking it down into general scriptures concerning zeal, scriptures exemplifying zeal, instances of zeal in individual people, and so on. The Dictionary Bible Themes defines zeal this way. A single-minded desire, characterized by enthusiasm and devotion. In scripture, it is often directed towards God, 
but God is also credited with zeal for his people and for the honor of his name. Misdirected or inappropriate zeal can degenerate into fanaticism. Now that already gives us a useful framework for looking at zeal. It's an enthusiasm and a devotion that we can have for God and that God can have for us. But it can also be misdirected when we develop that same strong desire for something other than God. Still, though, it's best to let the Bible explain a topic to us whenever possible, and the Dictionary of Bible Themes gives us a helpful breakdown of zeal's appearances in the Bible. It offers a selection of verses that show us zeal directed toward God, toward God's house, toward serving God, and toward God's law. We can also find verses about God's zeal, directed against sin and directed toward the well-being of his people. There's also a section about places in the Bible where zeal is misdirected. There's a ton of information here. Where should we go next? Go broad or go deep by examining individual verses. At this point, we can decide to go broad or to go deep in our study. We can either move through all the subgroupings of zeal or focus on one single grouping. Going broad will help us develop a more holistic view of zeal, understanding the many different ways it can show up in our lives, while going deeper will allow us to dig deeper into one specific aspect of zeal. For example, understanding what a zeal for serving God looks like in action, or what specific ways zeal can be misdirected, etc. Of course, there's nothing stopping us from going broad and deep. It's just a matter of setting aside the time to do it. Either way, we'll probably be doing a lot of verse-level studies to extract as much meaning as we can from key verses on the subject. If we choose to look at zeal in serving God, we'll see that Paul encouraged the Romans to be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Romans 12 verses 10 through 13. Sometimes word studies add extra insight. The Greek word for diligence and fervent are both connected with the concept of zeal. This might lead us into one or more word-level studies, where we would discover that the word for fervent, zeo, Strong's number G2204, literally means to boil, and implies being emotionally stirred up or on fire. That insight can help us understand that zeal is an intensity of emotion, prompting us to take action, and that such intensity could easily be capable of accomplishing great or terrible things. Where we aim that intensity, and why, can make all the difference in the world when it comes to zeal. See what others have to say. The Church of God, a worldwide association, the organization behind this book, runs lifehopeandtruth.com, which is an excellent resource for studying biblical topics. Our writers care deeply about their subject material, and they put in effort to produce the most useful content they can. A quick search on the site turns up two relevant articles, Religious Zeal, The Bad and The Good, and What Are You Passionate About? The benefit of articles like these is that they'll walk you through a specific facet of the subject you're interested in, and you'll probably have even more ideas for related studies once you're finished. Personal Application This is a step we should be taking with all of our studies, but a topical study especially leads us to ask ourselves how what we've learned applies to us. This moves us into the arenas of prayer and meditation, and often back into further study. In the case of zeal, that might mean asking ourselves and God questions like these. What is zeal, and why is it important to God? What am I zealous about in my life? Am I zealous about the right things, or is my zeal misdirected? 
What aspects of God's truth do I find myself getting zealous about? What steps can I take to increase the right kind of zeal in my life and decrease the wrong kind? Level 3 Example Study Books Ruth is a book of the Old Testament that comes right after the book of Judges and just before the book of 1 Samuel. It's a short book, but doing a little extra research into its setting helps make the story that much richer. Insight from Reference Materials A Bible dictionary, atlas, or commentary can offer some helpful insight here. If you don't have access to these tools, and even if you do, we offer an overview of each of the books of the Bible on the Books of the Bible page at lifeopentruth.com. The book of Ruth actually takes place during the time of the Judges, as we see in Ruth 1 verse 1, a disjointed time in Israel's history when there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, Judges 17 verse 6. During this time, the people of Israel often found themselves in some form of captivity as a result of ignoring and breaking their covenant with God. Ruth is a historical account, and it tells the story of an Israelite widow named Naomi and her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth. Naomi, her husband, and their two sons had originally gone to Moab to escape a famine in Israel. A Bible atlas can show us where Moab was located in relation to Israel, to the southeast on the other side of the Dead Sea. This would have been a long journey from the city of Bethlehem, which Naomi and her husband left behind in Ruth 1 verse 1. The book of Ruth doesn't mention this, but the Moabites were explicitly banned from entering into the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 4 and 6. This is important context for the rest of the book. As a Moabite, Ruth would have been far from home in a foreign culture, as well as an extreme outsider, something the author constantly brings to our attention. The phrase Ruth the Moabitess appears five times in this short book, alongside references to her identity as a Moabite, a foreigner, and a Moabite wife. We can also find some interesting, but not essential facts about the book itself. The book makes use of some Hebrew puns and wordplay, for example. Bethlehem means house of bread, and in Ruth 1 verse 6, Naomi returns because the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. In Hebrew, the phrase giving them bread uses alliteration. The structure of the book reveals that these words were put together by a highly talented storyteller. This isn't just a story told as quickly and plainly as possible. The whole book is structured as a chiasmus, a literary style where words or concepts are introduced one after the other and then reintroduced in a reverse order. Connecting the dots. Our research about the context of Ruth can help us develop a deeper appreciation for the content of Ruth. Looking up locations in an atlas gives us a better sense of where this story unfolded and what the distances involved would have been. It wasn't a quick jog between Bethlehem and Moab. Both relocations would have been a serious and maybe even dangerous journey. Knowing the time frame involved helps too. This was a turbulent chapter of Israel's history, with the constant threat of oppression from neighboring nations, including Moab. See Judges chapter 3 verses 12 through 13. Knowing that Ruth would have been an outsider in Israel adds weight to her promise to her Israelite mother-in-law. Entreat me not to leave you, or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth 1 verse 16. These were not lightly spoken words, but an unyielding commitment that few people would have had the strength to make. 
At the end of the book of Ruth, there's a short genealogy, almost an epilogue, informing us that Ruth was an ancestor of King David. That also makes her an ancestor of Jesus Christ. With a little context, it becomes clear that Ruth wasn't just a Moabite who moved to Israel. She was a brave young woman who left her pagan identity behind in order to follow the God of Israel. Continuing the study. With some preliminary research out of the way, it's time to move chapter by chapter, or verse by verse, through the rest of the book, drawing connections to the background information we've uncovered. Level 4 Example Study Chapters Chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, the love chapter as it's often called, makes for an excellent chapter-level study. Even though it's part of a larger point that Paul is making about spiritual gifts, it's also a self-contained explanation of what godly love looks like in action. Don't forget the bigger picture. If we've been reading through all of 1 Corinthians, then we're coming to this chapter with a decent understanding of how this single chapter fits into the broader discussion Paul was trying to have with the Corinthian congregation. This is extremely helpful. Although some chapters have a specific theme, for example, faith in Hebrews chapter 11, each chapter should be studied in the context of the book it is included in. No chapter of the Bible was written to stand on its own, with the obvious exceptions of Bible books like Jude and 2 John, which are only one chapter long. That context will help us understand the point God is inspiring Paul to make, and help us avoid reading our own lessons into the chapter. Either way, Commentaries and cross-references are excellent tools for helping us to see how the chapter connects to Paul's arguments throughout 1 Corinthians and even to the rest of the Bible. The first three verses, for example, connect back to the concept of spiritual gifts, a discussion that began in the previous chapter. Paul emphasizes that, without love, even the most impressive spiritual gifts gain us absolutely nothing. A cross-reference will likely point out other places in the Bible dealing with the concept of love, like the all-important reminder in 1 John 4 verse 8 that God is love, or Christ's words in John 15 13 that there is no greater love than what he showed in laying down his life for his friends. Inspecting the Lists Paul then proceeds to break down the concept of love into a list. What is it? What isn't it? The beauty of a list like the one Paul gives us in verses 4 through 8 is that it points us toward further studies. We could look at the Greek words he used and see if they contain any special significance. What exactly does the word for rudely mean in verse 5, or the word for fails in verse 8? We could turn to all the cross-references for each point and see how they connect to what Paul was saying. We could also meditate and pray about developing those qualities of love in our own lives. Love never fails, but other things will. In the rest of the chapter, Paul goes on to explain that love is the only true, constant spiritual gift. That one day, when that which is perfect has come, the childish things of our current existence will be behind us, verses 10 through 11. These verses give us plenty to think about in terms of what we value and prioritize in our physical lives. Commentaries can help us make better sense of Paul's analogy of seeing in a mirror dimly in verse 12. Anytime we engage in Bible study, we should expect to be challenged with opportunities to reflect and grow. This Bible chapter is filled with opportunities for both. Level 5 Example Study Verses Paul wrote, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. Colossians 2 verse 16 This verse is often used in an attempt to prove that God's holy days, as described in Leviticus 23, and food laws, as described in Leviticus 11, are no longer binding on Christians. 
A proper verse-level study will show us that Paul was saying nothing of the sort. Context, context, context. To study this verse, our first thought should be about establishing context. If we want to understand what Paul was trying to say, we have to start by looking at what else he was saying in the same letter. This means we need to be looking at nearby verses, the rest of the chapter, and even the rest of the book. Plucking a single thought out of context makes it easy to come away with a wrong understanding of what God is telling us. When we take a closer look at the context, we discover that Colossians 2 verse 16 isn't even the full sentence. Another verse completes the thought. So let no one judge you in food or drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Verses 16 through 17. That is important. These festivals and Sabbaths Paul wrote about are shadows of things to come. They picture something. Through them, we have a glimpse of a future that's coming. Note that the New International Version shows an incorrect change of tense, which significantly alters the meaning. A shadow of things that were to come, giving the impression that the Sabbath is no longer in force. Already we should be wondering, if that's true, why would Paul be saying that these things are no longer important? The more context we get, the clearer Paul's message gets. He continued, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Verses 18-19 through 19 ESV Paul wouldn't have used those words to talk about God-given commandments. He was the same one who wrote that the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good in Romans 7 verse 12. He wasn't discarding any of God's commandments. These words were aimed at something else entirely. Paul was talking about the false doctrines tied to the philosophy that would one day become Gnosticism. These people weren't judging according to God's laws. They were judging according to their own faulty belief system. Angel worship, visions brought on by self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, Colossians 2.23 ESV. These ideas conflict with God's instructions for us, and Paul was attacking them as beliefs that have no right to impact how we are judged as Christians. Commentaries are a double-edged sword. As useful as commentaries can be, this is an example of why we should not rely on them entirely. In the case of this verse, many commentaries will attempt to paint Paul's words as meaning the exact opposite of what he was saying, that Paul was saying God's food laws and holy days are no longer necessary for Christians to observe. It's important to always do our own studies and not take someone else's interpretation at face value. That's true for everything in this book as well. It's good to know how scholars and students of the Bible interpret God's word, but we can't depend on them to be right all the time. If those interpretations don't ring true with the rest of the Bible, it's up to us to continue studying. You can see our commentary on this particular misconception in our online article, Colossians 2, 16-17. Did Paul abolish the law? Put it through the same rigorous tests you would put any claim about God's word through, and see if it holds up. Level 6 Example Study Words Genesis 2, verse 2 says that, On the seventh day God ended his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Rested is an interesting word here. God, the all-powerful creator who never slumbers or sleeps, Psalms 121 verse 4 NLT, chose to rest. Why? 
And what does that look like? Check the interlinear. We can start by looking it up in an interlinear translation, where we'll discover that here, rested comes from the Hebrew word veyeshbot. It's labeled with Strong's number H7673, which we can look up in a concordance or lexicon. But before we turn there, our interlinear also points out that this specific occurrence of H7673 is a consecutive imperfect verb tense using the call stem, written in the third person masculine singular. Let's make a note of that. Now some of that might not make sense to you. A lot of it might not. And that's okay. It doesn't need to all make sense. But now you know where to find that information in case you need to reference it later. Cross-check with the concordance. If you look up that number, H7673, in a concordance like Strong's, you'll find that the root verb, Shabbath, is used 71 times in the Old Testament, and that it generally means to cease, desist, or rest. The Englishman's concordance will give you a list of every time that general verb, Shabbath, shows up in the Bible, 71 times, as well as every time it shows up specifically as it did in Genesis 2 verse 2. Only two times, Genesis 2 verse 2 and Joshua 5 verse 12. In that general list of 71 appearances, you'll find Amos 8 verse 4. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail. The word fail in that verse comes from the same Hebrew verb translated rested in Genesis 2 verse 2. In the context of Amos 8 verse 4, Shabbat can mean the same thing as our English word fail, but you can probably see how that's not true everywhere. Genesis 2 verse 2 would be very different if it said that God failed on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. This is the danger of treating all instances of a word as the same. Concordances will tell us the ways a word can be translated in different contexts. They don't give us options we can swap out whenever we want. Knowing which definitions fit where requires a deeper understanding of context and Hebrew and Greek grammar. However, armed with all 71 instances of the word, you can compare all the different ways it appears in the Bible, which might help you better understand the word itself. Glancing through that list, it's clear that the Hebrew verb often carries the meaning of ending, removing, stopping, or taking away. Dig deeper with a lexicon. Because lexicons offer more insight into the way words are used, we can look there next. A lexicon like Brown Driver Briggs will provide many definitions and examples of Hebrew verbs based on their stems. Remember earlier when we discovered that Shabbat in Genesis 2 verse 2 uses the call stem? Well, we can use that information to zero in on the relevant entries in this lexicon. Under the call section, the second definition in Brown Driver Briggs is desist from labor, rest. We're looking at a kind of rest defined by not working. God didn't rest because he was tired in Genesis 2 verse 2. He rested on the seventh day because he ended his work, which he had done. Of course, from looking at all the passages about the Sabbath, we see that resting on the Sabbath means more than just not working. Connecting the dots. This resting was an intentional act, and it set an important template for God's people. The next verse tells us that God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Verse 3. A cross-reference tool, like Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, will point us toward the fourth commandment, which tells us, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. 
For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Exodus 20 verses 8 through 11. God's act of Shabbat, of ceasing from work on the seventh day, served to sanctify the Sabbath day for his people. His rest in Genesis 2 verse 2 is intrinsically tied to the rest we experience every week when we cease from our own work on his Sabbath. Other cross-references might also point you to the New Testament, where we read, There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered into his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. Hebrews 4 verses 9 through 10. Further studies. Our interest in one single word, rested, helped us clarify what that rest looked like and pointed us toward a fascinating topical study. From here, we could decide to dig deeper into the Sabbath and its connection with the future rest spoken of in Hebrews 4 verses 1 through 11. We could also take a closer look at the remainder of the chapter and how Jesus Christ factors into that rest, or just study the entire book of Hebrews for that matter. That's the beauty of it. The more you study your Bible, the more potential avenues you'll find for future study. A single word led us to a commandment and an entire epistle to explore in further detail. As we study those, we'll find more answers and more questions that prompt more studies as we go on to perfection. Hebrews 6 verse 1.